Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre, with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we interview Rachel Jamison Webster, a Northwestern University creative writing professor and author of Benjamin Banneker and Us, 11 Generations of an American Family. It was published by Henry Holt and Company in March 2023. Webster's book explores the life of a brilliant African-American astronomer, mathematician, and writer during the 18th century. Banneker's legacy extends through Webster, a white woman who was one of his distant relatives. Rachel Webster was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Tamara Payne. Hello, Rachel. Thank you for joining us on Bio Podcast. How are you? Great. Thank you, Tamara. I'm really honored to be here to talk with you. Absolutely. Um, one, I just want to congratulate you on, on this wonderful book about Benjamin Banneker and us. I was fascinated reading it. You know, Benjamin Banneker is an important figure in our history. He was a freedman who wrote the uh, first almanacs by a Black man, but also he was a surveyor. He was a mathematician. He was just a curious person. He was into agriculture, astronomy, and so many things. So to read this book and learn that you are a descendant of his, was very interesting. So I'm really like to know, how did you learn that you were a descendant of Benjamin Banneker? Wow, what a thing to learn, right? Um, That was an amazing moment. So it was 2016. It was in the middle of this very contentious election season. It seemed like the whole narrative of what America means was up for new debate. And I was at a cousin's wedding sitting on the deck, talking with my cousins about all these ideas. And one of my cousins said something about how it was especially interesting, given how much mixed ancestry most Americans actually have, including us. And so I didn't know what he was talking about. And it turned out that we had generations of African-American ancestors who had lived these extraordinary lives. So they had left Maryland, they had been landowners, then they'd come to Ohio, they were landowners there. They had continually found ways to survive and thrive. And our branch of the family had broken off from them in the late 19th century and passed as white. And so we had lost touch with all of these stories. In the middle of this very elaborate family saga that went back through my grandfather's mother's line, it all went back to Benjamin Banneker's sister, Jemima. So Mm. I was fascinated that we had lost touch with these stories, that they were in our own family, they were in our collective American history. And here I hadn't known them. And then, of course, once I looked into who Benjamin Banneker was, I was just amazed and fascinated. So how did you go about confirming that this was indeed an ancestor of yours? 
So my cousin, Melissa, had done this research and she had been on Ancestry.com, but she had very strict rules for herself where she could only verify ancestors if she had double documentation, basically. So you could see that in my grandfather's line, there was a whole group of people who were listed in the census with an M next to their names for mulatto, which is interesting because they were the only ones who had a designation. So in this area of Northeastern Ohio, where I grew up, there was this sort of default to whiteness. And yet this family was noted as different. And so you could see all of that on paper. And then you could see the ancestors going all the way back to the people who moved to Ohio. And those were the children of Jemima and Samuel Lett. And then that connected to all the genealogy and the research about Benjamin Banneker and his family that had been collected over many years by many family members, other descendants. And I am a descendant, but I'm one of 25,000 documented descendants. So this is not an individual acquisition. This is a huge group of people. And these are coming from one of the sisters. So there are many thousands more people related to Benjamin Banneker. So many of the cousins, the African-American Black cousins, had recorded this. And then also researchers had been very interested in Benjamin Banneker because as a free person of color in the early 1700s, his Mm -hmm. ancestry was recorded. So we can go all the way back to the late 1600s for Benjamin Banneker's ancestry, which, as you know, is very rare for a family of color. So it's all traceable on paper. One of the Mm -hmm. most moving and interesting things about this process for me was that when my cousin Edie got in touch with me, and Edie is a lawyer, she's a Black woman, she's a proud descendant as well of Jemima and Aquila. She said, I've had all your people mapped out on paper, and I was just waiting for one of you to get in touch. So- Ultimately, the mapping was finally going on on our side from my cousin Melissa, but the Black side of the family had also traced this one branch that had gone up to Ohio and passed and disappeared in a way. So on both sides, you're coming to realize what we're talking about 2016, that this branch, your branch of the family has left the family or gone into passing. And this thing of passing, is it's an interesting concept, right? Because the reasons why it happens and and what comes with that and and the cost, because Mm -hmm. there's a cost where you lose your family. Because if you decide to pass, I mean, and this is how it is for how a lot of Black people are seeing it. Mm -hmm. It's like you lose your family. You can no longer acknowledge these people in public, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's, it's a real cost there. And you lose your culture too. And a culture in this family that was so much about resiliency and taking care of one another. And yes, there is a huge cost. And that becomes kind of a personal reckoning as I continued with the book. Yeah, I mean, in some of the discussions I've been having lately is is that we have to come to terms with what's going on in this country. The original sin, as we call it, the enforced enslavement of people, and then denying their freedoms, but also denying their descendants, 
access even until this day. So it's like, we still have to deal with this. And in dealing with this, it's what you're doing in uncovering that your family history is kind of peeling back these layers of history and mythology to the truth of this matter. And I think you actually write about it and you call it reparative narrative. Narrative reparation at one point, just trying to tell the story. I was really guided by That quote from James Baldwin, where he says, it is devoutly to be hoped that we'll be delivered from our myths and given our history. Right. I just really wanted to examine the myth of America that I had inherited personally. And I like your wording, peel back the layers to get to the actual history. Right. And I'm curious, when you find out, and this is now confirmed that you are a descendant of Benjamin Banneker, that you have African-American relatives now, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or we'll say the Black side of the family. Mm -hmm. How does that affect you now and how you identify as an American? I did not feel surprised. I actually felt a sort of a centering. Um, I actually believe that denial is like a discord in the mind and in the body. It's a nervous feeling. If if someone is in denial, they have to become kind of elaborate and false <laughs> increasingly. And so I felt that there was this almost like a harmonizing once I understood the ancestry Because Mm -hmm. I had been drawn to what then in the 90s, we would call multicultural spaces for a long time. So I had left this small town I grew up in, come to Chicago, loved it, loved the diversity, loved the energy here. And then I'd gone to college in the Pacific Northwest in Oregon. And I loved the nature out there. And I met great friends, had a good education. But I really missed this sense of culture that I had felt in Chicago that is actually Black culture. And so I started a writing program with the Urban League. And I would work with students there. So I had done things for the 20 years prior to learning this ancestry. And then when I learned this, I felt like, oh, that kind of makes sense. Because there were generations of our family that were trying to live in those inclusive ways. That there was something in me kind of longing to get back already. So I didn't have a shock moment. But I did have a real big pause around, okay, now what do I do? I'm a writer. So, of course, I became immediately obsessed with researching and learning. But I actually did not know how to go about this project ethically because Mm -hmm. I didn't grow up in Black culture. And I'm not going to claim that. I have enough respect and reverence to know that isn't my culture. I'm a visitor. I'm a relative, right? So I did a lot of research. I thought I would write a long essay about this. I wrote a short essay about it called White Lies in Fiction that was basically my family's passing was mirrored in the larger narrative of the country. Mm -hmm. I put it out, continued to research, continued to write, but didn't quite know how it was going to work out. And my cousin Edie read that essay two years after it was published. Oh, okay. It was two years. It was two years. So when Edie got in touch and we really felt like cousins, I felt like, okay, this is how I can do this 
because it can be a conversation between me and my cousins. So to Mm -hmm. me, it's kind of less about my identity, although I do feel very proudly part African and Black. I claim that I embrace it, but more about relationship. Like, how can I be in real relationship to the Black people in my life, including my family members? Right. And that kind of comes across. All right. So this is a project that's taking it on. So you started in like 2016, you're finding this out. And now mm-hmm. we're getting up to 2019. You're in touch now with one of the cousins. And that, and I think it's really interesting how you're reaching out and doing research. And then the cousins have also been doing their own research. And they also have these stories, right? Mm-hmm. That have been handed down that mm-hmm. your branch of the family has now been cut from, right? Right. But they have like all this history and substance and mm-hmm. content, right? What is that like for you to hear that? Because this is now becoming part of your research of putting this project together. It was so beautiful. I was so grateful that they would share that. I mean, Edie had done 40 years of her own research, you know, before things were online. And so it was marvelous to hear what she had learned and to be brought in. And then She introduced me to Robert and Gwen and her brother Edwin and many more cousins who didn't make it into the book, but I was in conversation with. And so it was incredible. I mean, Robert had an oral history about my ancestor who had left the compound in 1830. So for me to be told oral histories that had been passed down was incredible. But Robert was the one family member who grew up with these stories. So Edie's mother had been adopted. So she had also gone in search of a missing history and um, talked sometimes about if you are from a branch that has been broken off, you have to do work to reconnect that branch. But I was very grateful to them for their generosity and for the collaboration that started to happen. Because as you know, a lot of the work of writing is very solitary. And Mm -hmm. so to feel like this was becoming a family project was extraordinary. And it was so often that I would be deep in some chapter and Robert would be calling me thinking about the same thing. Or I could always call one of them and say, what do you think about this? And they would maybe have a source that I hadn't connected with yet. So it was a very um, rewarding collaborative process. The other thing, as far as like, when you're talking about Edie's 40 years of research, was that through going through archives and records? Because she was a lawyer. So she also understood how to go through public records and stuff like that, right? Exactly. Um, she, She did a lot of that on her own. She did years of it on her own. And in that completely obsessive way that you need to do that kind of research. And also it's a very specific skill set. And I realized, you know, I was more of a a storyteller to weave things together, but she had this skill set to do the research. I mean, she would go to the National Archives, the Maryland Archives, sit with the old documents, Because as you know, too, if you're researching families of color and she's done all of her branches, you have to be very inventive about where you look for people. And so she just had an incredible amount of information and had 
put people into the tree, thousands of people into these family trees that she could identify. So we all recognize one another's skill set. And our cousin Robert will say, Edie is the really skilled genealogist here. And Robert is an incredible connector of people. So he Mm -hmm. just stays in touch with so many descendants at all times. And that also became a resource, just this level of relationship and staying in touch with people, staying in conversation with people. It was toward the end of finishing writing the book, a researcher who compiles a database on free African-Americans in Delaware, Maryland, his name is Paul Heinig. He found a document relating to the family and he got in touch with Robert to tell him, who then told me. And so we ended up with some new information about the Banneker family because mm-hmm. of this kind of collaborative approach. Right. And that sounds like that kind of led to some issues. Um, yes. so you went into the rift because of this information, but this allows me to go back to Molly, your yes. ancestor from England. Yeah. I was curious, how was it researching her? So just on a personal level, Molly is this British woman who was a working class milkmaid and she was sentenced to die for stealing a bucket of milk, which seems unlikely, but it was actually happening all the time. There was an excess of young working people and there was a brutality to getting rid of them. And then because she could read from the Bible, she was given the lesser sentence of indentured servitude in Maryland. That is an oral history that was collected when they started collecting Benjamin Banneker's ancestry and his history. So that's been passed down on paper and then through the ages about Molly. We have not actually found a ship's manifest for her, but we also know that a huge percentage of indentured servants were sort of brought here under the table. And especially if they were convict servants like Molly would have been. Also, a lot of records were lost and women's names were changed because they married. We have a lot of documentation on this family. So I wanted to weave together the written documentation and the oral histories. And so with Molly, we had that as an oral history. So Mm -hmm. one of the documents that did surface during the writing of the book is a record from the Provincial Court of Maryland that has Mary, who's Benjamin Banneker's mother, arguing for the freedom of her children in the Provincial Court. So she had three older children, and they were indentured because she was indentured. And she was indentured to the age of 31, just because she was the daughter of an African man and Molly, a British woman. So they were writing indenture, which then became enslavement into law there. They were starting to imprison and indenture and then enslave women's children. And so here we have Mary arguing for freedom. She would have been pregnant with Benjamin then. It's fascinating that she's standing before the court calling these laws against children repugnant while she is carrying 
this baby who will end up saying basically the same thing to Thomas Jefferson years later. Right. But I'm talking in a loop. In that document, you see her saying that her mother was a British woman indentured to John Newman. So we know now that we have verification on paper of Mm -hmm. many of the things that the oral histories had also recorded. Was that found by Edie or was that found during the time that you and Edie and Robert were kind of collaborating? During the book, it was actually the book was written and then this showed up and it was found by Paul Heinig and he got in touch with Robert who got in touch with me. And so COVID had just ended or sort of cleared enough that you could finally travel And he had one interpretation of it all. I had kind of a different one. And I thought, we need to all go there and look at this for ourselves and see what we think. So Edie and I went to the archives and looked at all these documents together. And that was really helpful because Edie had all of these years of experience of deciphering the old handwriting. And then the other amazing thing, so... Mary in the document is arguing for the freedom of her three oldest children, Zachariah, Sarah, and Deborah. And through DNA, we could see that we were also related to a Zachariah Lett, and nobody knew how. And there it was that that would have been Benjamin's older half-brother. Wow. So the reason we have this much information is a Quaker woman who was the daughter of Benjamin Banneker's best friend, George Ellicott, decided to write his biography. And she interviewed everybody who was still alive, who knew him and knew the family. This is now in the early 1800s. So she was trying to sort of find everyone she could to interview, which you know what that's like better than I do. Yeah. Um, and, and this family, Ellicott, it should be noted that they were close to Benjamin Banneker. They were very close and they were a Quaker family who were very prominent. Andrew Ellicott was like the top surveyor in the country. And he then hired Benjamin Banneker to be his assistant paid assistant surveyor to survey Washington, D.C., the capital. Mm -hmm. So they were a prominent family and they highly respected Benjamin's mind. They knew him well. He was 40 by the time he met them. So they didn't make him an intellectual. (laughs) He was already writing and thinking and inventing things, but they really, there was a meeting of the minds in this friendship. And um, Martha, Ellicott had grown up seeing Benjamin Banneker and her father talk late into the evenings about history and science and astronomy. So she wanted to do his biography and Mm -hmm. she interviewed everybody who knew Benjamin Banneker and who was in the family. And this fact came out that he had a British, a white grandmother. Mm -hmm. And it was an uncomfortable fact even then because abolitionist really wanted Benjamin Banneker to be the poster child for black brilliance. And they knew that there was such disdain that his genius would be 
chalked up to that one European ancestor. And so it wasn't a fact people were comfortable with. And so she went out and re-interviewed people and found more grandchildren to Mm -hmm. ask, is this really the case? And they confirmed it. So I like to believe the family, especially since so many of the oral histories are being verified by documents now. Right. And this is the importance of interviewing, too, because, you know, on our project, we spent many years. interviewing <laughs> many 30 can. years. <laughs> and you can't just go with one person's uh, story. You do have to verify it. And mm-hmm. and the other thing I think was very interesting that you're saying that you don't know where you're going to find information. That it's is- very interesting because it was Martha and her cousin, Rachel, interviewing and they were interviewing other descendants of Benjamin's sisters. Mm -hmm. So other grandchildren from the Banneker lines. So I do want to believe those stories and then also be open to ways the oral history may have to shift a little bit when we find documentary history. And that's always, that's a dance. And I'm also curious about how in the end, like after you're doing this book, does the rest of your immediate family, how do they respond to meeting the uh, these cousins who they didn't know before? Yeah, thanks for asking. I, I actually want to do a whole website with photos from the last year because mm-hmm. it's been an incredible process to share the book. It ended up being like a series of family reunions at every different reading and really beautiful. So the first book release party in Baltimore, which was appropriate, Everybody came for that, including my parents. And so we have a much more real vision of our family. I read in my hometown, which is almost an entirely white town, and I had cousins drive in from that reading, like, whoa, where am I? You know, the, my black cousins coming into town for this. Like, uh, I don't see any other black people here. Is this going to be okay? But I felt so grateful to them for, you know, standing up with me. So there is a collective process. I'm very much in touch with my cousins. And it feels like we have started a collaboration that will continue. It's a deep sense of responsibility to the ancestors and deep kind of learning and co-creation that we're doing together. We're also working with the Benjamin Banneker Park and Museum. And that is a preserve of the Banneker land. So it's owned by Baltimore County. And so we're working with them to really protect that land as a monument, not only to this family, but all the families who were free families of color or who were owning land and then having racialized violence come at them just because they had risen to that level of prominence. Yeah. And that's important. The other thing, when you bring up the story of having property destroyed, because that is what happened with Benjamin Banneker's property, right? They yes. down, And many documents, his diaries were lost. So what we have from Benjamin Banneker is still extraordinary. We have his published almanacs, which he published from 1791 to 1797, and they were best-selling almanacs. And then we have his letter to Thomas Jefferson, which was amazing. And we have one of his manuscript journals. And in that one journal, it is 
filled with mathematical equations, astronomy, poetry that he was writing. He was recording his dreams. He was making all of these naturalistic observations. So he observed the 17 year cycle of the cicadas. And he wrote about that in terms of his own life, remembering when they had come back before. And then he correctly observed that the star of Sirius was probably two stars rotating. Mm -hmm. And these were discoveries, quote unquote, that were not made by European scientists for 40 or 50 more years. And this is from his observation of nature. Also, probably his African heritage and African cosmology, which he would have gotten through his father, Robert, and his grandfather, who he didn't meet, because the Dogon people of Africa already knew that about Star of Sirius. So that's in the one journal we have. So we know that his nephew, Greenberry Morton, right after he died, went over and filled up one cart with books, and the one journal was in that. But there had to be so many journals and letters because you don't write as well as he wrote. I mean, his letter to Thomas Jefferson is amazing if you just write one letter. You know, he had to be writing all the time. And people talked about him as an intellectual. So, you know, he was writing and reading all the time. So there's just a really disgusting sense of the loss and what we could have had of him. With that said, thank goodness we have what we have. He was clearly a genius. And I also felt like if I can tell the story of the past and put it into conversation with the present, then that's what I was supposed to be doing. Well, thank you. And thank you for joining us. Yeah, it was a pleasure. That was author Rachel Jameson Webster interviewed by fellow biographer Tamara Payne about her latest book, Benjamin Banneker and Us, 11 Generations of an American Family. It was published by Henry Holt and Company in March 2023. And this interview was recorded in November of last year via Zoom. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.